I was just thinking, this whole um, cycle of sutras that we're doing today, as many of them as we get through, are sabhakalpa samadhi, nirvakalpa samadhi. Um, How long does it take us to get liberated? Why does it take us so long? It's really quite a... um, I, I like to deal with things that are really feet on the ground. Plus, of course... Um, these are not subjects that I can talk about from any experience, so I just have to try to round it out from the things that he said. Now let me try to catch this. But the essence of this whole section is how difficult it is to perceive things accurately. And um, I'm going to go back to the word smriti in just a minute. But here we are tonight, and I'm walking around and I have my coat on. It's the first time I've really had my coat on this year. There's always this sense of intrusion when the summer, when the warm weather begins to stop. That's how I feel at least. It's like even though every year it shifts from being warm to cool, every time it comes, it's sort of, at least for me, because maybe that's because I live a lot in my head, just sort of I'm vaguely conscious of not being comfortable and then I figure out that, oh, it's winter, and I have to start you know, bundling up a little bit because it's winter time. And I've just completely forgotten about it, except just sort of a dim theory that it was going to come again. And I was reflecting that that's exactly what we're talking about in these sutras, is that we lose track. I mean, I, I can't even keep track you know, from summer to winter. Of course, at my age... And with the way I focus my life these days, nothing is dependent on what month it is, really, except that it's Christmas or Guru Purnima or something like that. But when I've been doing what I've been doing, which is both teaching and writing, it's always you're always in um, this flow of thoughts, and these thoughts don't have anything to do, whether it's cold or warm outside. You just kind of peer out there and you kind of see what it is. Um, but still, it's like we, we don't keep track. In fact, we're always just living wherever we're living. And what should be self-evident to us, what we should be able to anticipate, what, what we should be completely prepared for, completely surprises us, doesn't it? Now imagine from incarnation to incarnation how we have these experiences. They're so vivid at the time. We make firm resolutions and then time passes, and all of a sudden we're surprised by what's happening. And my friend Nidruva remarked once that when she was 10 years old, she didn't know anything about reincarnation or the spiritual path, not consciously. Of course, she came to it later. But she just remembers as a child having this sense that childhood was overrated <laughs> and that it just really wasn't the good deal that everyone thought it was. And she remembers telling herself, don't forget this. You know, don't, don't, and, and later she realized she was saying to herself, don't fall for this again. Don't get sucked in one more time to the thing that somehow this time it'll be different. Um, I, I was just trying to capture, I'll go back to the sutras, but this is really the essence of what's there. I was just really trying to capture that, like what is it that really finally makes us know that we want to have a different kind of life. Where's the line? I recently have come to understand what the concept of of, of an intellectual means, an academician, the sort of the difference between 
um, intellect, uh, between knowledge and wisdom. Um, when I was growing up, I had a tremendous desire, as you've heard me say, I, I characterized it as a desire for happiness. It got, I got more sophisticated in my retrospective understanding of what it was that I really felt. Um, but I had a very consistent point of view from a very young age. I called it different things, but, for, but the internal impulse in me was pretty much always the same. And of course, it was a past life memory just pushing for these teachings. And when I finally found them, I just took them just like this. Now, let me, let me go back to where I was. Oh, yes. But because I'm in, I have a, uh, an, an intelligent mind, relatively speaking, and I was raised in a household where that kind of culture was valued, I, I never could quite get this idea of, of why Swami would talk about intellect but there's this there's this quality that people have oh I'm starting to say about seeking knowledge so when I was accepted at Stanford University even though I had no particular interest really in anything um, but it was a prestigious thing to have accomplished and my parents were willing to send me so I went ahead and went I don't think you should waste college on people who don't know what they're going to do there because I just wasted my parents' money. But in the very first week, I actually took a class that was called Consciousness. This is 1965, so they were doing things like that. And I went into that class, and it was part of why I quit going to class really quickly. Um, All we talked about was everybody's ideas about consciousness. You know, just and we're just t- talking about everybody's ideas, and I really wanted to know what consciousness was, and it was almost like my desire to to bring it to a practical, useful conclusion was not considered to be um, a valid area of research. You know, the valid research was to just talk about what everybody thought and why they thought it, and to compare them and. I have to say, at the time, I was utterly bewildered. I, I mean, it seems naive now, because I just didn't know. I was just bewildered by their, their lack of commitment to, to what does this mean to me. Swamiji talked about how he had this interest in being a, an astronomer, and how he was fascinated by the heavens, and this was when he was like a young, very uh, 12, 13 when he was 13, he was building a telescope. And he said, but then the lens he was grinding fell on the floor and cracked. And that just discouraged him so much he never went back to it. But he also began to appreciate, even if I know all about these stars and how many billions of them there are and what they do and so on, he said, what, what difference will that make to me? In other words, the difference between wisdom and knowledge. He could, he could have an enormous amount of knowledge but it would all be a, a secondary experience compared to his, his inner life. And in this sutra, one of them, which is just, I think, one past or two past where we are, it's number 143, he talks about the distinction between the way God sees things and the way man sees things. God sees everything from the inside out. 
And he said he made creation from the smallest cell. And it's, it's, I've heard Swamiji say these things many different times, but recently I'm finally beginning to understand why he would always say these. I, I, I have this picture in my mind of many different discussions with Swamiji in which I could feel that there were deep implications to what he was saying, but I couldn't access those implications. I just could tell that he knew them and he was trying to say them, but I just couldn't receive them. There was just no way that I could. And how many times have we heard Swami talk about how God manifests the universe from the inside out? He manifests it from his own consciousness, whereas man creates from the outside in. And he was talking about how God manifests from the single cell. I mean, think of our human bodies. It's like the the sperm and the ovum come together. That's what Master said. They come together, and that's the first. That's the first cell. I mean, how how tiny is that? How like not apparently a human being is that? Just such a, a minute, seemingly nothing, but in that moment and. For those who wonder about the question, Master said, that's the moment in which the soul commits, that there is no life unless the soul commits because the soul is that individual piece of the infinite spirit. And unless, the, unless God is committed, there's no way that the, the being can be created. It has to be created from the inside out. No matter how hard they try, they can't assemble it. He talks about how man, how man looks out from himself and sees and then creates things. He carves pictures of, he carves horses out of stone and he paints pictures of sunsets. He sees it and of course he then filters it through his own consciousness. And of course the, the, the more inspired the artist, the more the image actually comes from inside. And uh, a truly revolutionary artist or revolutionary thinker is pulling the energy from things unseen. This is how that book, um, Conversations with Great Composers, which is a really fascinating book. I mean, all the really great composers are, are intensely conscious of the fact that they receive it, but they don't create it. And I've heard Swami criticize different artistic endeavors, including some of my own, calling them mental, meaning that we looked outside, we had some ideas, we reassembled those ideas, and then we presented them, perhaps nicely polished and, you know, in a smooth flow, but it it didn't grow like a seed from an, an inner source of reality. So that piece of divinity enters into that cell, and then from its own nature it creates... Um, the physical body, and the physical body is created according to the pattern of energy in the chakras. And so it's, it's going to be a unique expression of that soul's nature, not um, an idea of what it ought to be, but just a vibratory manifestation of what it is. And once the soul enters there, the, the chakras are present and they're vibrating at a certain frequency. And then that, that vibrating frequency coalesces into what appears to be matter. I mean, fascinating, isn't it? But where does it all come from? You know, what, what is it all about? And what Swamiji says in here is, because 
mankind, because a person doesn't understand himself, he can't understand anything in the world around him. And I was really trying to think about that and trying to reduce it down to something that I would understand. Just think of a simple example like this. If a person doesn't really know what he thinks and what he feels or why he feels the way he feels, let's use you know simple psychological um, understandings that people have. If your parents treated you a certain way, you know, if you've had certain bad experiences in this lifetime and you will then project those experiences onto new circumstances. And you, if you don't know that you're simply carrying around this story of how people behave or how people respond or what it means when someone does thus and so, you'll look at the world around you and you will see it entirely and only through what you have already decided is true. I mean, this is the whole process of trying to you know, go to a psychologist and understand what motivates you and what happened to you when you were a child or a past life reader and what, was, what went on in some previous incarnation that causes me to think that way. But the origin, you can see that it all, it all functions according to where does, where, who do I think I am? Where does my pain come from? How have I defined human relationships? What do I expect? And that's how we see the world. And we can't see it any more clearly than that. And I'm sure you all have been through, as I have been through, misunderstandings where you suddenly realize you have been projecting this reality onto the world. You haven't been understanding your impact on people properly. You're surprised by how they take things. That's not how you meant them. I mean, all those different um, changes, isn't it? But the whole your whole relationship to the world is dependent on how clear and how much confusion there is and how many conflicting cross currents of egoic misunderstanding are all engaged there. So what Swamiji and Patanjali are saying here is that until all of it is resolved, you know, which is to say it, which is that we've been talking about this whole section, the vrittis, all of the oscillating waves of vibration stored in our chakras that are always pulling us left and right and defining us as one thing or another until all of those are resolved we can't see reality as it is and so we're always caught know thyself that's that's what's the advice here the more you know yourself the more you know everything knowledge doesn't depend on whether you know yourself or not you know we we have these people who can just be brilliant but they don't know anything. I referred on Sunday to uh, this snippet of radio interview I heard. Somebody else actually told me that they also heard the same interview. I guess he's a scientist of some sort. Very snooty fellow. Very, very um, egoic voice. And he, 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 as I was mentioning then, he talked about how, I guess he, I guess he apparently... Um, actually talks a lot in favor of science and against spirit. He actually has a, is on a campaign. So the interviewer, I just heard a snippet. The interviewer said, well, I understand that you were confirmed in the Episcopal Church. And he talked about going to a, a religious school and everybody was confirmed. It was just what they did. And then he quoted St. Paul. who St. Paul says, when I was a child, I concerned myself with the things of a child. But now that I'm a man, 
I, f- I follow the things, the ways of a man. Now, what Paul meant by that was when I was a child, I was preoccupied with the world. Now that I'm a man, I understand the, the rules of spirit. Well, this man reversed it and spoke of religion as the things of a child and science, the interest, materialistic science, the interest of a man. Okay, that was bad enough. But the audience cheered. The audience laughed and then applauded when he said that. And you could also tell, it was just a radio interview, but it was, must have been before a live audience. You could also see that he was playing to the audience. He knew that that was going to get a rise out of them, and, he, and the way he did it, he played to them. <coughs> um, what a society we live in is the first thing I'm going to say. And the second part of it is, well, I've seen blasphemy three times in my life, actually. And that was the third. Blasphemy is very interesting. Blasphemy is not the same as just not, be- not believing. Even the atheists that I was in company with a few years ago when I, went, I foolishly accepted an invitation to speak in an atheist group, well, they were pretty awful. Maybe I've seen blasphemy four times. But um, it's where you deliberately go out to destroy people's faith in God. And it's, it's very, it's, it's a unique quality. And for those, yes, I guess four times, I would have to count the atheists. There's just this moment uh, where there's so little wisdom and there's nothing but knowledge. And you see really how empty all that can be. If, if it doesn't really, if it's just an accumulated capacity to be skillful at your job, I don't mean that knowledge is useless. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just making a distinction. Because sometimes knowledge just creates more and more oscillation. And Swamiji writes in here about how scientists feel that in order to be effective in the work they're doing, they can't allow feeling to interfere. I mean, that's a, that's a, a valid point. Master makes the emphasis that reason always follows feeling, which is if we're predisposed to have a certain point of view, then it's very difficult not to have that point of view, that we just find all these reasons because we don't know ourselves. He said, so the, the scientific community has dealt with that fact by trying rigidly, <coughs> as he puts it, to exclude all feeling from the equation. But Swamiji emphasizes the fact that you can suppress feeling, but you can't exclude it because it's the way we're made. The, the, when thought stops, the feeling nature is still there. God himself is the feeling of bliss. And Swamiji has emphasized at other places that intuition is pure, calm feeling. So the scientists, by repudiating that area, rather than trying to understand it, um, just put them, make themselves vulnerable to not knowing what their own motivation is. And then Swami quotes Max Planck, who said that sci- new scientific ideas um, gain acceptance not because the old guard is convinced, but because the old guard dies. And the, the new scientists grow up just t- taking it as the given. Which, what he's trying to dismantle is that knowledge is not wisdom. And, and then he, he gives some examples. There's some famous examples of some poor archaeologist 
who had a whole lifetime based on this certain archaeological theory in terms of the sequence of whatever civilizations he was studying and he was in an archaeological dig and there was irrefutable evidence based on the strata in which certain um, evidence was found that utterly refuted what he had devoted his life to proving. And so he simply took the artifact and he moved it to where he wanted it to be. Can you imagine the moment? I mean, he's, just, he's looking at ruin and he doesn't uh, have the capacity to face ruin. So, of course, he was ruined anyway because it all came out. I had a conversation with a friend. This is how naive I am. I, I attended Stanford for one year and then dropped out and never went back. So I know nothing <coughs> about the academic world and how it functions. So I was having dinner with friends who are research scientists, I believe over at Stanford, in the behavioral sciences, as they call it. And uh, they've been you know, living on research grants for most of their careers. And I know that's, that's a, a fountain that's drying up, but it flew, has been flowing pretty steadily for them for a long time. And she was, we were having this conversation and she, she was in a, she was very distraught because this big project, research project she was doing was not coming, the results were not coming out the way she anticipated they would come out. And she was very upset about this without even explaining it to me. I, being so naive, said, so? I mean, you've done research and you we're going to have it come out this way, and now it's come out this way, so you've still done research. And she then looked at me like, when were you born, woman, like a minute ago, and explained to me that, you know, the grant was written to prove this certain point, and if she can't prove that point, then the whole thing is, um, it ruins her reputation and makes it difficult for her to get more grants. I said, so you don't actually do research. You just have hypotheses that you know are true and that you don't dare actually do research. At which point, I, I, we were at dinner, and I said, pause. And I leaned over, and I laughed, and I laughed, and I laughed for just a moment. It was just, the whole thing was so preposterous. And then I said, okay, now let's go back and have this conversation, because this was serious. It was, was serious for her career. But I guess the phrase, give me a break, is that what that phrase means? But just like, what are we talking about here? How confused we have become. Because we can't really know ourselves. Now, the other side of this, though, this is where Swami's talking about Nirbhakalpa Samadhi and Sabhakalpa Samadhi. And having Sabhakalpa Samadhi, we're still connected to our ego. We're still, the ego is still present. And he raises the question that Sabhakalpa Samadhi is the final test because we have this experience of this infinite power but we still have some identity with our ego and so there's this temptation to not be able to tell where the power is coming from. This actually, for those of you who have been you know, part of Ananda or read a lot of Ananda's history, Swamiji had this strange karma with this woman named Taramata who was the agent of his, uh, the architect of his expulsion from Self-Realization Fellowship in 1962 which, of course, was the happiest day of our lives because we would never have gotten Ananda without it, but was a rather tough moment for him. And it, it, the toughness went on for, well, for the rest of his life, actually. They never let up on him. But uh, 
Swamiji always had a hard time trying, sort of reconciling because Taramata was a very, very, very highly advanced disciple. And he had great admiration for, for her. In fact, in something I read, he called her his best friend. Um, even though she ostensibly, apparently, just was un, un, unbelievably unfeeling to him and cruel even, eventually. But he, he, Swamiji decided that, he, he felt strongly that she fell spiritually and various things that even she herself said toward the end of her life um, indicated that. But he said he felt like that was what happened to her. She went into the state of Sabakalpi. She experienced whatever that is. I can only describe it in words. And, but at the same time, she took it to herself. And he describes in here how one becomes, one be, the greatest temptation is to think you know as much as your guru. And that's one of the things that happened with Taramata and Master, is that she, she just contradicted him, and she didn't respect him in the way, in ways that, that startled Swamiji, especially after Master was gone. She just seemed to have a callous disregard, or certainly a lack of appreciation. But the ego had just come in there and it had uh, made things really different. Now in the state of Nirvikalpa, uh, even though there's still this memory of having been an individual, there's no identification with it anymore. And Swamiji says you can't fall from that state. I mean, these are also... Um, I was looking for this uh, class series from last week. I went onto our own website to look at it um, so that I could confirm where I thought I ended, you know, just to make sure that I was where I thought I was in the book. And I noticed how many people watch these. I'm very impressed, you know. I mean, some of them, one of them had 500 views. Who knows why? Just one random class. Most of them have a two or 300, but still that's an amazing number considering how little time has passed. But there was also a comment. Somebody commented on one because of it was class number six. In, I'm pretty sure it must have been the class in which we had a long discussion about Swami Kriyananda. It was in May. It was soon after he died. And I was talking about all the persecution that he endured and um, uh, certain facts and actions in his own life that I've been always not been able to quite understand. And it was a very heartfelt and very open conversation. And then there was a comment, and the comment was also very sincere, but it just declared, you know, clearly this woman has certain issues that she hasn't worked out, you know, clearly she can't accept this and this and this, and I I think, all I can think is, oh, the, word, the only word that comes to me is, wow. You know, how, how easily we just feel so strongly about things and God knows and this is what I really want to say God knows I'm guilty of that as much as anyone of just taking a position and then not necessarily being centered enough to stand back and ask why do I feel that way where did this thought come from I watched a little girl once having her prejudices formed this we were in um, for a while when I lived in Nevada City we 
went to this health club with it was a racquetball club and we would play racquetball and then sometimes afterwards you'd go into the hot tub uh, the, just you know to ha- relax after the game and we were sitting in there and it was an op- it was a public area not private and this mother and her like 12 year old daughter also came and sat there we'd never seen them before so there was just a little conversation and the mother says in this sort of way oh jacuzzis are nice but i prefer the dry heat of a sauna she said it just like that. I can hear her voice. I prefer the dry heat of a sauna. And the little girl kind of sitting there, and she looks at her mother. She sort of looks at us. says, I prefer the dry heat of a sauna, just like that. And I could see this woman, you know, as a teenager, they want to go sit in the hot tub, but she doesn't want to because she prefers the dry heat of a sauna. She gets married. Her husband wants to put a hot tub in the backyard, but she wants to put a sauna, you know. Just this whole thing. It's like, where do these things come from? Swamiji writes in this book that this world is vibration and as long as there's vibration as long as we're in this world it's the world of duality it's always just going to be moving back and forth and we use the word you know I want to get centered I want to get deep in myself I want to be in my spine all these words because what we know is we can't always just be swinging back and forth and we have this uh this reality that we go through of reincarnation. And, and the way Swamiji describes it is, even though, I mean, Krishna says to Arjuna, get away from my ocean of suffering. I mean, this is the Lord himself. And he's, he's telling uh, Arjuna, he's telling his disciples, he's warning him, you know, this world that I have created, you've got to get out of it. It's like, well, why did you put me here in the first place? It's completely bewildering. But that's, that's the way that Krishna sees it. He sees, he sees the suffering. He sees how many people are just caught up in this maelstrom of the ever-alternating vibration of duality. And the senses looking out and trying to define the world by what we see and not having this inner reality from which to live. But then Swami writes, well, if it's such a lousy place, why do we keep coming back? Uh, He says, because there's just enough of the happiness that we forget about the suffering. Every winter, I am surprised. You know, every winter, I'm surprised. I'm not really horrified. I'm just surprised. There's this vague sense of something's wrong. <laughs> you know, like I'm not coming. But oh, it's October. This happens probably almost every October. It's, and and so it is with us. And we just keep thinking that because we only look at it, we don't know ourselves. We don't recognize that what we're experiencing is our own reactions, our own prejudices. I remember one of the uh, very, um, it might have been Byron Katie, but if it wasn't her, it was someone like her, who's done a, an extremely creative job of of uh, secularizing these teachings. And, and I mean that, I don't mean that in a negative way. They've just done a very good job of it. And she or someone like her said, you know, once an event is over, all you have is the story you have created and told yourself about that event. It's really not there anymore. All you have is your story. It's just, it's just like, 
And then that story becomes your feeling about it. And your feeling about it just guides you ever after. I mean, four incarnations. I remember I told you sometimes about how I developed a fear of the airport when I was there with David and he would, he would leave me. I mean, just leave me to go get a magazine or leave me to take a little walk. Just that atmosphere became extremely frightening to me. The past life, I mean, I gradually figured out and I was able to overcome it. But, you know, why and where? This story that I have in my mind, who knows when something happened to me and now in this moment that story has become the present reality. And, and a master, you see, Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, Sabhakalpa Samadhi, they're not telling themselves any stories anymore. The only, they're, the vrittis have stilled. The, the stories have all played themselves out. And in the beginning of uh, this one, the one that we're really on here today, um, knowing, knower, known as one, this is number 141, I'm sort of running three or four at the same time. One must eliminate all desires and expectations. One must have no wishes regarding how he is treated. Should he be condemned to die burning at the stake, he should be indifferent to that fate. I think Swami pulled that one out because remember he had a dream. He had this dream in which he had been condemned to be burned at the stake. And he said, and in the dream, he, he told us the story because it was so interesting to him. In the dream, he was comp- completely relaxed. Oh, well, okay, I'll be burned at the stake. He said there was just no anxiety manifested at all. Yes, it might be painful, but it'll pass so quickly. There's no point in becoming really agitated about it. And then he described in the way that dreams are often so goofy, all the people who had condemned him were having a banquet, just sort of on that side of the room and then just a few feet away he was being burned at the stake and they were just having a really jolly time and the flames were beginning to come up and then suddenly he was rescued. Some of his friends came and they took him away from that fate and the Swami said again he was so pleased because his response to being rescued was exactly the same calm acceptance as his response to being condemned. Now the only way one can possibly even imagine being in that state of mind is that one has a completely different concept of oneself. This is how Swami writes later in a later um, stanza here. If you see yourself as part of the whole and you have no separate reality, and that's, he says, as long as you're identified with the ego, then we have this idea of being a separate reality. And if we are that separate reality, we're always anxious. We're always anxious about what might happen to me. Whereas if we have, if we have identified with the entire flow, then it's just a flow. Nothing even happens to me. In the Miracles in Answered Prayers book, which I hope will soon be in your hands, it's the book that I finished a year ago, we're finally getting it published here. Um, there's a story uh, that Devarshi tells about nearly drowning. I don't want to tell every part of it, but he didn't, self-evidently, because we know him to be walking around. But there was a certain point at which he was certain he was going to drown. 
And he said his own, as he put it, his own reaction surprised him. The phrase he used is he just turned over on his back. He said he literally went belly up. (laughs) He just lay on his back and he felt like, I don't know if this phrase stayed in the story or not, but he used it at some point. That it was just simply time to return his body like a borrowed library book. (laughs) It was just like he'd been using it and now it was over. And to his astonishment, he was just as at ease about that as he, he he was. He had no context for being so comfortable, but in the moment, well, it was over, so let it go. But it's because that sense of self was held lightly. We we often project upon animals this great suffering and this great individual anxiety. Swamiji tries to explain this to us. There is an individual consciousness in an animal. But it doesn't have the self-awareness to, to contemplate itself and all the implications of its life. And as a consequence, it just, it just moves as a force, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't worry about its own fate in the same way that we do. And so we think that the animal is very concerned about dying. One animal psychic said that the animal doesn't care about dying. It's concerned about the sorrow of its mommy and daddy is all but itself it just doesn't it doesn't make any difference because it's a force it knows that it will live in that body for a while and then move out of it and it has nothing to do with itself it doesn't even have that much awareness that's the nature of it human beings by contrast and this is how we end up having it take so long is that once we reach the human level which according to what's written here 8 to 10 million lifetimes moving through from what? From a diamond all the way up to a human body in ever-increasing states of awareness. In the Raja Yoga course, Swami has a phrase that I didn't notice for the first 40 years I was reading that course. And the phrase was in essentially this. We manifest the body that allows us to express the limits of our present awareness. And so whatever the limits of our present awareness are, we will manifest a body accordingly. And when we have used up that body's capacity to express you know, our awareness, then we will slough it off. And whether that is progressing through the stages of the non-human world you know, to more and more evolved animals, animals with more and more freedom, a uh, uh, a clam or a mollusk or whatever those things are that cling to the rock and, you know, kind of barnacles. barnacles, They're living things, but they don't really have uh, much scope. They they can't really have very many experiences compared to a dog. I mean, you just see the dogs. You you go down the street. It's just so funny. You see people walking their dogs, and especially the dogs with little short legs. Like this, you know, they're just they're just so busy, and then they're pulling this way and they're pulling that way, and they're looking at this and they want to look at that, and like, what's so darn interesting? But they're just always trying to expand their experience at all times, right? They have a lot more options than the goldfish, you know, it just just goes around and around. Our, we have a pond in our backyard, and for when we when we moved into that house a few years ago, we, we, there were fish out there. We sort of said, oh my gosh, we've got pets. You know, we didn't have any pets before. 
Fortunately, it's a self-sustaining system. Um, it's also, we discovered, it's also free lunch for this beautiful white heron who came, her, yeah, yeah. every so often, the first time that the bird, heron is the right word, isn't it? Uh, egret heron, whichever one it is. E, I think it's an egret. The first time it came, it was like, oh, what a gorgeous bird. And, you know, we, we saw it a few times. Oh, fantastic, he's coming to visit. Then we realized he was eating every single goldfish. <laughs> And when they were all gone, he stopped coming. And then we went out there, we realized we didn't have any pets anymore. <laughs> so we restocked it, of course, and he came back. I don't know how they know, but he knew. Finally, someone told us, you put these clear strings across. Uh, I, we've seen him a couple of times lately, so maybe he's figured out how to get around the string. But I guess the string makes it, they, they, don't, they can't dive for fear they'll get caught in the string. So we've managed to keep our pets pretty alive. If, if you live on Monroe, where our community has ever come over there, there's this uh, Indian family. They built a multi-generational house, and they put a koi pond, big pond, in front of their house. And who, apparently the heron found them, too. And we all watch. You know, you live in a neighborhood for a long time, and you watch these things. This ever-increasingly sophisticated barricades against the herons that they had to put on that pond. And finally they built this, and I, I mean, I walked over to look at it. It's like, it's a me- it looks like mesh, but it's steel, this still steel mesh. They built this whole gazebo over the koi pond, and then they hung lots of pretty things on it. And I was walking down, I was driving down the street one day, and I looked over, there's the heron. And the heron is walking really slowly around that thing. <laughs> You know, he's, I mean, like this. And he's looking, and he's looking, he's looking. He circled it three times, and then I drove off. You know, I don't know if he ever gave up. It was just so, there it is. It's just evolution, just right in front of you. This heron, is, he's got willpower, he's determined. His entire focus is food. But, you know, he doesn't, he can't go to Stanford. He's just like, he just has to keep working at it. And at some point, by some method, he'll have just done everything you can do as a heron. And there'll just be no more, nothing more in it for him. I don't know who he becomes next. I I don't know how any of that really works and what the sequence is. Master said, monkeys, um, dogs, and horses are the most evolved. Um, And they're they're the beings, they're the animal species that are the most evolved. We were in Costa Rica and uh, taking a boat ride and, you know, one of those tourist, marvelous tourist things you can do in countries like where they have jungles and rivers. We came to a certain point and the guard, uh, the guide started making these noises and all these monkeys came, little monkeys, little monkeys with absolutely human faces and human eyes. They were so, they were so people-esque. It was really, it was really scary. These, these monkeys were just on the edge of becoming people or just on the edge of not being allowed to stay as people. I think they, had, they were fallen because they were so intent on being with us. You could just sort of feel, but all that, you know, it's all a mystery, but it's no different for us. Once we have a human body, but we're doing exactly the same thing. And when people ask me sometimes, what, what should I be doing? What should I be doing with my life? I said, well, do you feel that you're living at the far edge of what you're capable of. Spiritually speaking is usually the question. 
You know, and if you're not, then you need to be doing that. Now, you need also to be realistic because um, you don't get there any faster by thinking that you can skip who you actually are. But you, we need, just need to be at the far edge of it. Otherwise, we're wasting the incarnation. You know, such as all this opportunity we have for satsang and for service and for um, grace, for darshan, for all these different things we have. Are we using it? Or are we just sort of letting it slip between our fingers and then just squandering the incarnation and then we'll have to just do it again? It's an amazing prospect, isn't it? Swamiji uh, writes in here, and then we'll take a short break. He, He writes in here, you just can't get there by reason. He said, at a certain point, you realize that you just, the reason just takes you into a more and more complex reality. And the way you need to settle it is you just go back like a child back into your heart. And when, when you love something, you don't really need to understand it in that way because you understand it in a very different way. You just sort of know where you're going and you know what you're doing. Um, there's more to be said about that, but we'll stop there for the moment. Let's take a break, and then we'll see where we are. Okay. Take a few minutes. I was watching uh, some nature movie. I wrote a letter about this once. Some nature movie, and the, it was all being filmed from the point of view of the baby seals, I guess, or the baby somethings, so that when the baby somethings were eaten the, by, some, by the, the big others, whatever the others were, and they were eating them, of course, to take the food back to to feed their babies, there's the bias of the film was very much in favor of the baby seals and very much against the other. But I was just thinking how completely arbitrary that is. If the whole thing had been filmed from the point of view of the other, you would have just been so happy they found a baby seal to, you know, to masticate and regurgitate so that they could feed it to their babies so their babies would live. And and I was also thinking that if you're if you're the deva in charge of the one animal, then you have to help make it work for that one. And if you're the deva in charge of the other, you it's it's all like it's we we see it from the outside. We don't see it from the inside. That's the same. That's exactly what Swami's saying. We see it from the outside. Oh, this one's eating that one. We don't see it as this force of life that's just moving through and has to just play the self out in the body. The bodies are given, the bodies are taken away. And I come back again to, it was a Buddhist monk who said this in answer to the question of reincarnation. He said, you see this as all these separate events. He said, it's not separate events, it's one continuous flow of consciousness. And the, the imposition of one body after another, moving to the astral world, there's no, there's no break. It's not you were this and you are this. It's that you are, I am. There, it's just one continuous reality. There was another thought there. Let me try to, to find it for just a minute. Um, back to their, them eating each other. What were we doing? Oh, I was, we were having a discussion in a small group the other day about the Native Americans. It all started because now we own a farm. So we're going to, you know, we're thinking about planting all these fields and so on, of course. Of course, planting all these fields. There's all these deer in that area. And if we start really growing these delicious, succulent things, well, they're not going to hike around the hills anymore looking for stuff. They're just going to come right to our farm. It's like, why would they not? 
So all of a sudden we have to think about how to live with them and persuade them not to do that. And the most persuasive thing that anybody's ever found is seven-foot fences, sometimes with electrical wires. I mean, in years and years of efforts, that's what most people end up doing. You simply have to fence your field because otherwise the deer wander through it. Um, Ananta said something interesting about uh, Ananda Village where they've been farming and the same deer families have also lived there for a long time. When when there used to be hunting season around our area up in Nevada City, on, on the day, first day of hunting season, there was always more deer on our land. There was noticeably more deer on our land. Um, but an, Ananta has farmed a certain area of Ananda Village. Then he was away, actually, for many years, almost two decades, and then came back and is farming that area again. And in the meantime, some of the deer fences that he had carefully constructed in his first round were not intact anymore. But he said he's observed that the deer behave as if the fences were still there. It's like generations have been trained that you can't get in that way, and so they have new roots. It's not that he, it's, he can completely ignore it, but he was surprised compared to years ago when they would break down and fight for anything. Just interesting realities. But we, we were talking about the Native Americans and how um, extraordinarily sophisticated and sensitive their way of living on the planet was. I say was because it's very difficult to replicate it at all now. And, and, and how they you know, made peace with all of the different creatures. Uh, and they would talk about how when they would go to hunt, you know, they would they would pray to whoever was in charge of the herd because they needed to live, and in order to live, they needed th- some of those bodies. And they said often that certain animals would separate themselves from the herd. And you can just imagine it. Oh, it's all right. It's been nice. I'll just let you eat me. And they would just go off and, and let the Indians have them, and they would always be very grateful. They would honor the spirit. But you could see how, oh, we can't even begin to imagine how far away we are from that. Of course, we're shifting from one yuga to another, so it's not like we should just go back to that. That's not, it, it, it's over. By the time the Europeans got here, that culture was in an end. All indigenous, what we call indigenous cultures, they're all being wiped out. And from our point of view, we think it's a great tragedy. But if you really think that this is Kali Yuga moving into Dwapara, it's like they're all part of what was before, and now we're just going into something else. And terrible things happen along the way. American Indians, Master said, the treatment of the American Indians is the is the is really bad karma for this country that is yet yet to be expiated. I had a thought just recently because when I brought that up once, I always used to say it was the American Indians and the the, the fact of slavery in this country that was. Master had said would cause some of the hard times that are coming. But I realize he never said the slaves. He only mentioned the Indians. But I, perhaps the Civil War, which was such a horrific experience for both the North and the South, maybe that was the, the karmic um, necessary uh, expiation for slavery. And that's why it, it does, doesn't linger in the same way. Who's to say? Now, do we have any questions? We have kind of gone all over the map tonight. Any from herons eating goldfish to 
the Civil War. Is Ananda Moy Ma an example of a, of a person who is living without a story? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ananda Moy Ma was a, at least, a, I mean, I don't know how to calculate, but she was a free soul. She was, she was a, a saint of the highest order. She, I don't think she was an avatar. I never heard Swami say that she was, but she was certainly in, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. I mean, how would I know? But she was a completely free soul. So, it, yeah, it seemed I was just thinking of her because some people had to help her, remind her to eat and all of that. But then I was thinking, Master, Master must have been living without a story too. But his story was all impersonal. It was he had a work to do. I mean, and not both of them just came and did what God wanted them to do. Um, and Master had the job of uh, coming to America and founding the Mission of Self-Realization. So he had the capacity to do that. It was all within reach to do it. Ananda Moima incarnated in a female body, did a very feminine work, which is she sat there and radiated divinity and never formed an organization or wrote a word or did anything but uh, she shifted you know hundreds of thousands of people's consciousness and continues to do so but she did it by just being it was very feminine people often ask why are there no women on the altar and I said I asked Swamiji why is it that avatars seem to be men he said it's a masculine job <laughs> because they could choose a body, but in either way, but you know, a feminine energy is different than masculine, not men and women. But Swami described Ananda Ma, who was a small and because he saw her a great deal, a small and very beautiful woman. He said she walked like this, <laughs> you know, I mean, not as ungracefully as I just did. But with that much force, he said she just marched across the room like a general, just with tremendous power. So she was a perfect balance. But she just, she did a feminine work. She was born in that consciousness and was always in it. Yeah. But it's hard for us to say, you know, I, I can't parse it apart. You, you have to feel it and you have to trust your intuition and use your common sense. And, you know, all the, the scriptures give you criteria, and you can tell. When I, sometimes people will talk to me about this teacher or that teacher, and I always compare it to what I understand about the principles of self-realization. And if it's too far outside of it, I, I, I don't have to have an opinion, but I, I don't have to embrace it either. Hmm, interesting. That's enough. But I'm always open to the fact that, I mean, Swamiji, whom I respected and knew very well and trusted completely, I don't understand, you know, a few things. Mostly I do. I mean, mostly, mostly it's not bewildering to me. To say I understand it is vast presumption. But I'm not bewildered. You know, some things I hear, I'm just bewildered. I don't know what they might be thinking. When you understand it from inside out, you feel it from their consciousness. And every so often, you know, I, 
when Swami, after Swami passed, I asked him to show me what it felt like. Or I asked him to just give me enough of an understanding so that I wouldn't feel bereaved. And I, I did. He did. And that's been very helpful to me just to sort of just appreciate what freedom is and not worry about it. I mean, this life is so short. It just comes and goes. It hasn't gone yet, but a lot of people are past. I mean, I'm just, when I just look at picture books, like everyone, photo albums, oh, this one is gone, and this one is gone, and this one is gone, and this one is gone. Yeah, we all do. Any other questions or thoughts? So one of the questions that just came up for me as you were talking was um, working to free myself from the ego. So I, I know where, you know, all these things that my ego does come from more or less, right? Thinking about You're therapy total, yeah. along those lines. So just to pick a silly example that I don't have, um, let's say you are uh, afraid of spiders uh-huh. and you know that nothing has happened in this lifetime with spiders so you assume, okay, previous lifetime maybe I died because of a yeah. black widow um, so every time you see a spider you, you, you're silly you scream you act very scared you know you have that you know it's ego. How would how do you work with all those you little know, ego things? Uh, I don't like the word ego used in that context very much. I don't think it's a helpful word. Um, ego is the soul identified with the body. It's not an enemy. It's a fact. We all have an ego. We've identified with this body. It's not ego per se. It's it's not a helpful word in that context. I, th- I find it more, and when I hear people use it, I, o- I often object. Just like, what do you mean by that? Because when you, when, you, when you explain or dismiss um, your own actions by just calling it ego, oh, it's just my ego. It's sort of like saying, oh, it's just my right hand. It, it's like it's, you're just trying to separate something that you really can't separate. And what happens is you become at war with yourself. And I've never seen, I've never seen it help people to be at war with themselves. You think it's going to help you, but it doesn't. It just fractures your capacity to go forward. And most of the time when people dismiss things as just ego, sometimes it really applies. But mostly what you're working with is uh, samskars and vrittis. And, and it's, it's, it's better to say, well, this is a vritti. This is an inclination of mine. This is a samskar. This is an impression that I carry that this is dangerous. But, but see, inherent in that is um, delusions are very subtle and they cannot be dismissed as just delusions. See, it goes along with it's just ego. But that's a very... What have you accomplished by naming it that? It's just much matter that, hmm, I'm afraid of spiders. 
Isn't this interesting? I seem to have a deep-seated fear of these spiders. And so now I'm going to have to really, you know, develop the courage to face the spiders. And there's two ways to deal with it. There's two ways to deal with all the things that draw us away from our center. We can merely raise our consciousness to perceive it differently and dissolve it that way, or we can spend a lot of time trying to understand why I feel this way. And sometimes you have to understand yourself, and sometimes you can just transcend yourself. It just depends, but the fact that it's ego is, again, like saying, oh, well, I'm breathing. It, It just doesn't help. Think of it more like that. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Yes, but it makes me think of something else. The, so what's a healthy way of looking at the ego? Um, by developing humility. I mean, and, and humility is self-honesty. That's how Master described it. Humility is just seeing things as they really are. So that's the healthiest attitude to have toward the ego because to be against it is as distorted as to be for it. Because you're you're not really terrible for getting off center over spiders. You're just being yourself. And, you know, they may not really be fearful. But in fact, if you live in a place where there's lots of poisonous spiders, maybe you need to be careful. It's just, it's simply the truth of the matter without an exaggeration on either side of it. So humility is always what we should be working on. What's really true here? Not how do I feel, how am I reacting, what do I want, what do I not like, how much I would like this to change, how much I want this to be different. That's all just the spin of duality. Humility just says, okay, what's true? What's really true here? Not what do I like, what do I not like, how terrible I am, how foolish I am, how wise I am. How just, and if you are wise, you are. If you really have accomplished something, either in an external or an internal way, you have. It's not ego to just see things as they are. Ego is when you distort things because of their personal relationship to you, whether it's a fault or a virtue. So you want to just have an impersonal relationship to everything that's associated with yourself. And impersonal is... it. If it is, it is. If it isn't, it isn't. It's not a cause for a big excitement either way. I mean, I'm, this is also just me. I'm just thinking about my ego. There are times, and Swamiji said to me once, you know, whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. That's what he said to me when I did a project on the basis of wanting to prove that I could do it well. And, and my motivation was not really to serve or to do a good thing, but to prove that I could do it well. And that, that was when, at the end of it, and it didn't go well. It was a disaster. And at the end of it, that's when he said, just like that, oh, when your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. He said like that. I knew exactly what he meant. I, I mean, it was just exactly right. Self-importance and things like that. So, But other than that, I don't usually think about it. Because I, there's nothing I can do about it. Just thinking about my ego, just like, so confusing to me. How can, I mean, the ego is thinking about the ego and the ego is evaluating the ego and then the ego is rejecting the ego and I just end up wanting to watch a movie. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> but am I centered? Am I kind? Am I being realistic? Am I overreacting? Am I getting a fat head about this? 
You know, those things I can deal with. I can, those are words that I can actually do something about. Uh, Nishkama. Sometimes through all that, it's, uh, it's helpful, I think, to uh, just keep remembering that God's the only door. Yes. Yeah, and that's, see, that's again where humility comes from. God is the door. So that's why Swamiji, I always think about him sitting here because it happened on occasion here. Oh, he would tell us that, you know, this week he wrote three books and next week he's going to write five more. And, you know, just, he would just make these long lists of superhuman accomplishments. But there, would, there was nothing in it. There was, no per, there was no personal identification with it. He was just sitting back and marveling at what God had done through him. And it was a fact. God had done it through him. But so there was, he just was completely impersonal about it. Those are the things that were sometimes bewildering to people. They just could not understand because they themselves would be seeking self-importance and self um, to make themselves, to justify their existence. They would have a personal motive for doing that. And so they just, because this is the way we are, if you don't know yourself, you project it on others. And not, not being able or willing to admit their own uh, jealousy, they would instead criticize him for being e- egotistical. You know, just, it's, it's just comical once you start watching it play itself out. So humility, self-honesty is really the best policy. Okay. I guess what I tend to do is I just end up offering it to God. So I'm afraid of spiders, and here I am screaming at them again. And I just, here it is, God. I think that's a very good solution. That's another impersonal way of doing it. It's like, this is your problem, sir, not mine. Yeah. And this is this keeps happening. And whoa, look at this! It keeps happening. I need a little help down here. <laughs> yeah, stand back from it. Give it away. That's perfect. That's devotion. You can't reason your way out of it. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? Well, then, we have actually, and I was reviewing it during the break, without reading any of them. We have actually, I sort of looked at this one and I thought, there's only one way to do this one and that's the way we just did. Is uh, we've gone from um, number, sutra number 141 through sutra number 146, which is probably a record for the, this class. But I think we pretty much covered everything that's there. So we'll start at 147, which has almost no commentary. So the neat idea that we would finish this book this year means we're going to actually start the next book next year. I mean, we're going to start the next book next week. Next book yes, the next book within this book. So we finally made it out of book number one. From, we're out of Samadhi Padha, and we will be in Sadhana Padha because almost, there's almost no commentary from I-27, from 127 to 151, 147 to 151. Okay. So that's it. Thank you, Great Souls. We have one more class, and then actually we won't have, we have a, can you believe it, a four-month hiatus between travel, or all my travel, and Christmas. Amazing. Okay. Thank you all very much.